0: Tech Central.
1: How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes, and welcome to Tech Radio. For ten years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Remember, as well as a show on air with RTE and online via the website, or your favorite podcasting app—be that Apple Podcasts or Spotify or TuneIn or whatever—we uh, keep you bang up to date on all things tech every single day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at TechCentral.ie. Joining me, as always, is our editor in chief. Niall Kitson and as we're as we're rocking and rolling our way towards Christmas good old Google has come out and told us kind of everything we've been looking for uh, throughout the year 2019 and some
2: interesting results do you think Niall? Yeah, the, the end is in sight. And these lists are always fascinating. Um, part of it is slow news season. I'm sure Twitter will have their top trends of, of uh, 2019 next week when we're already talking about our highlights of the year. Um, so Google came out with their overall lists and not an awful lot of surprises. Um, but a few that are in there that, that would have you going, oh, was that really the that important or was I really that out mm. of touch that I have no idea what this, what this is? Mm.
0: Well, <laughs> so.
1: I, I, I think um, I think the most interesting surprises came with the how-to questions, you know, like how do I change a tyre in a car or whatever it happens to be mm-hmm. uh, and also, strangely enough, uh, kitchen-related questions. Well, we get to them in a few minutes' time and let's go with the how up to speed am I with popular culture what were people searching for online uh, with regards to people who be in the news or singers or pop culture kind of uh, figures? Well, okay, who so were, we're, they searching?
2: we're looking at individual people, yeah? Yes, yes. Who were the okay. who are the
1: most searched individual people?
2: Right, let, let, let's,
1: let's start easy. Shane Lowry. Uh, okay, he's the uh, golfer guy, isn't he? I'm
2: yep. not, I, I'm not a sports person. <laughs> ah, but you knew Shane Lowry. <laughs> I knew Shane Lowry, yes. How did he do? Okay. Uh, he, he actually had a big win this year. So, uh, go Shane. Uh, that's, that's how, uh, he ended up, um, uh, so high up the list. He, he won, uh, a major in, in the States. Excellent. I can't, I can't remember which one Um, okay. Here's another one. Uh, Boris Johnson. Oh, wow.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Duh. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. That's fine. Well, no surprise there.
2: No surprise there. Uh, at number five, Maria Bailey. Oh, like Boris for all the wrong reasons, I bet. For all the wrong reasons, yeah, yeah. Uh, number nine, mm-hmm. Caitlyn Jenner. Uh,
1: okay, why? Why was? Why was she? He uh, making the she, news? Uh,
2: well, she was doing. Uh, I'm a celebrity, and oh, of course, I think yes. there was still. I, I mean, she seemed to be the only celebrity uh, in verse commas. I don't think she actually does very much. Mm. Um, to, uh, to be on the top 10. Uh, so let me, let me get you with one and you will be totally at sea. Go on. Okay. The second most Googled person in Ireland, mm-hmm. James Charles. James Charles
1: is uh, a very famous YouTuber.
2: I... I am a GOG. Yes.
1: Well, I watch a lot Googling of YouTube. In front of I me? watch a
2: lot of YouTube,
1: and video production is my thing. <laughs> so, now, I haven't watched too much of him, and I don't really know what he covers, but I do know that he's big in that scene. What is it that he does?
2: Uh, well, I don't. I do know. Uh, you don't know either, do, do you? you know? Are you trying to no, pull a faster than me? I Are do. you kidding? He doesn't. He does an awful lot of makeup tutorials ah. uh, and that kind of thing, right? So I do know what he does, Dusty. Thank All you right, very okay. much.
1: Well, no wonder I haven't watched many of his uh, videos if it's makeup tutorials.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. Fair so enough.
1: listen, that's 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 people. What um, yep. what else uh, do we have? And uh, movies. Give me give, give me quickly the 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 movies people were searching for.
2: Okay, well, let's let's go with some with some obvious ones, mm. okay? Uh, what do you think was the most Googled movie of the year? Slight surprise for me,
1: but, mm. yeah. Oh, crikey. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of uh, uh, movies I've seen during the year. The favourite was, um, uh, though, I wouldn't think that was, I'd say Aven- uh, Avengers, because they, they just seem to have all, all those Marvel comics and stuff like that are huge. So I'd say one of the Avengers movies.
2: Uh oddly enough, Marvel has two entries mm-hmm. in the top ten, one mm-hmm. of which is Captain Marvel, okay. uh, which came in at number five. Mm-hmm. But Avengers Endgame only made number three. Ooh. Who list. is at number two? Number two is the Irishman. <gasps>
1: oh, which I have to see. Don't tell me anything. I'm saving yeah. it. Alright, for okay. Christmas. Uh if you've so, got okay, so four Avengers at number three, spare. number two, the Irishman. Number one movie of the year on
2: Google search was uh, okay, a vaguely controversial choice, Dusty. Do you, do you wish to take a, a punt at it? No, I wouldn't have a clue. Okay, it is Joker.
1: Ah, yeah. ooh, yes, very yeah, controversial.
2: I yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the most Googled film in Ireland this year. <laughs>
1: what about then uh, overall searches?
2: Overall searches, okay. Uh, and here we get into slightly more. Obvious territory. Okay, okay. so uh, gay burn second most Google searched uh, in Ireland this year. Okay. I think for obvious reasons, that's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, number three, Storm Lorenzo, mm-hmm. um, because we we learned our lesson about about storms. Mm-hmm. Um, another obvious one. Uh, at number five, Brendan Grace. Ah, no, um, really.
1: Yeah, yeah, oh, I would, I would, I would never have thought of that. Now I, I know lots of people know him as an Irish comedian and stuff like that, but I didn't think I thought that would cover the the older end of the um of 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 the population whereas the well, younger end. Maybe
2: maybe that's it. You know, maybe you know people were sort of like going, why why are my parents upset about this? Mm. Let's let's do some, you know exploring on this yes you know, indeed maybe people know the name they might have seen him on TV a few times they've never actually seen any of his comedy all oh, uh, right okay. so maybe maybe that's what people were up to Um number of course one. we all know the, the grand characters like Botter I- and wearing the school <laughs> uniform and all that sort of thing yeah. um, okay number one ah come on bit of an obvious choice based on what happened this year
1: uh, it's sports related isn't it
2: yes it is
1: no wonder I can't think of it off the top of my head. Oh, uh Japan. Rugby. Yes. Rugby World Cup.
2: Yes, it's the Rugby World Cup. Well done. Not yep. too bad. Not too bad. Okay, Absolutely. now finally,
1: for the uh for the more interesting ones, the ones that kind of gave us that you would never guess. Um Kitchen related. Kitchen related, okay. Kitchen related, because this is one of the things Google seems to be very big on, is like, what recipes are people looking up online?
2: Yeah. And uh, do you know what? Um, This year, I think it it showed something of a a societal shift in a certain direction. Right. So let me throw out some of these uh, some of these grand results and you might see what I mean. Okay, so uh, at number number eight. In the, in the recipes mm-hmm. was things to do with courgettes oh god courgette recipes <laughs> oh yeah alright okay right. <laughs> number seven yeah happy pear okay well uh, the two boys you know, are doing well you yeah. know who they are yeah yep. the two guys doing very well uh, number five plant based recipes mm. number four I guess stew recipes ah now that's more normal A bit more normal. yeah. And at number two, keto recipes.
1: Oh, for God's sake. All right. Okay. uh, Do you know what? I'm going to guess the number one. And I'll tell you Uh, why I'm going to guess the number one, right? Okay. You said it was a societal change. Yes. Now, all of these happy clappy type recipes, I'll call (laughs) them, were all popular the last time we had a Celtic tiger roaring. Which is roaring again loud and proud. Um... And I think when we get into that kind of Celtic tiger paved thing, the most popular thing to be, if you're really into it, is vegan.
2: <gasps> oh,
1: that! Oh, are you saying that veganism is a fad or a fashion? I just think people get more into vegan stuff when times are good and then when times are bad they're right back into the basics
2: no i completely disagree when times are good the first time uh Mm -hmm. you know 10 12 years ago or whatever Mm -hmm. it was now people Mm -hmm. were all about kobe steak Mm -hmm. that's what people were interested in they wanted 150 euro steaks no we're you know veganism is closely tied to climate activism and food security I mean, this is why people are moving towards veganism. They're they're interested in doing their bit to save the environment and moving towards a plant-based diet and reducing reliance on animal products and meat products is part of that. All right, OK. All right, OK. I, I take it back. Which is, what's really interesting <laughs> is that uh, vegan was at number one, but keto is at number two. Keto, which is pre- a predominantly uh, meat-based diet, Ah, right, okay. Isn't that interesting? So you you have a plant based diet in first and a a sort of a meat based diet in in second. It's funny
1: how society changes because, I mean, uh, when you look back at reading in the years and stuff, right, Mm. uh, and you kind of see what the diet in Ireland was in the 60s and the 70s, it's Mm. like totally changed. It it hasn't just changed, it's totally changed in a period Mm. of just, what, 50 years or, well, less? You know, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite. Things are going, moving so fast. Anyways, uh, now that we have all of this extra intelligence and knowledge, um, tell me about the how-to list.
2: Oh, how-to's are always funny because, uh, as we as we know, people go on to YouTube to exactly. Out how to that's, do the, well, that's what I'm trying to
1: find. out. What is it that we don't know? Do you know what I mean? We're so into the climate and vegan yeah. recipes and da 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 da. And money's good, and everybody's doing fantastic. What are the things we don't
2: know? yeah do you, do you know what I, I think you could plug this list into absolutely any year and they would be exactly the same so the number one thing people want to know how to do in ireland mm-hmm. go, go, go. how to boil an egg how to boil that's an it. egg
1: that's it that's it that is and this is that light, is it in this in light. <laughs> If this was television, you would see me holding my head in my hands.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, as I say, God. you could plug this list into absolutely any oh, time Well, period. then in that
1: case, in that case, if it's any time, I would say uh, there's something to do with losing weight. Uh, and yep. there is something in there to stop snoring.
2: Uh, yes, how to stop snoring is there at number seven. Yeah. And how to lose belly fat was that number four? Ah, right. Okay.
1: what else? Uh, rounded out the top five. Then we'll wrap it up.
2: Uh, okay, around the top five. Oh, here's one that I imagine has been there since since you know God's time. Mm. How to solve a Rubik's cube? No way. That's a number five. Really? After all Irish but that's
1: such an eighties thing, and people. Yeah. Wow.
2: Yep. Oh. I don't I don't know if something happened oh, this year that that Rubik's Cube are, are back in but there okay. you go. And uh, at number uh number 2 actually this is, this is quite interesting. Mm. How to vote. Oh, bravo! Fantastic. I think that's really heartening that people are that interested uh, yes, in yes. engaging with the democratic process.
1: Exactly. And of course we've had such key referendums and stuff like that recently where a lot of young people are signing up. Because yep. normally, do you know, when you're younger, you don't really care so much about the system and politics and da 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 and all that kind of stuff. So you let it watch over your head. Uh, but as you say, yeah, how to vote? Fantastic. And and number one, how to, how to boil? An <laughs> how to
2: boil an egg? <laughs> boil an egg. Which you know, when oh. when you ask someone, can you cook, and they're not good, or let they say. I can't even boil an egg. Well, well there you go. <laughs> clearly, no longer an excuse.
1: There you go. All right. Well, there we, let's let's wrap up the first decade of the 21st century with how to boil an egg. <laughs> Niall, thank you, <laughs> as always, for bringing us up to date with the news this week.
0: This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. Tech Central.
1: We're used to hearing about our personal data being used to target us for advertising, but there are actually plenty of other uses, such as making healthcare services easier to access and use. Niall Kitson spoke with Dr Derek Mitchell, CEO of the Irish Platform for Patient Organisation Science and Industry, to talk about how the information that we give about ourselves can be used to create services tailored to our individual needs.
2: When we look at data, at the moment we're very familiar with the Google version or the Facebook version where things are harvested uh, seemingly at random
0: towards commercial end. From your perspective, what does patient data entail? Patient data is any information that is medical or health related that is uh, related to an individual patient. So, Examples of that would be what information is in your GP's uh, medical record that's in the GP clinic that uh, patients attend. It could be the medical record that is uh, in a hospital that you attended, uh, either as an outpatient or as an inpatient. Um, So there's, there's different types of patient data. The the data that gets people, I think, most interested is the the data that patients maybe are uh, contributing to without their knowledge. Um, So very often you find that, certainly from what we've found out, is that patients are very surprised when their data is not shared. Um, for the purposes of either their individual healthcare uh, between healthcare professionals or indeed to improve the healthcare system uh, that's designed to improve the health outcomes of patients themselves and then when you get into the realm of how patient data can be used for purposes that maybe are outside of those uh, for maybe uh, for research purposes or, or maybe even for health innovation which in in my mind at least, involves private entities and companies gaining access to high-level data that's de-identified, that's that's not attributable to individual patients, um, that patients have consented to, um, and to use it to drive health innovation within the Irish and the international health system.
2: When we're talking about health innovation on the one hand you're talking about products uh, which is fine and particularly pharmaceuticals I think would be very interesting in terms of mapping drug interactions for example but also uh, domestically we're looking at the development of services so, so what projects have really impressed you in terms of putting the patient at the centre of developing a service?
0: So there's two that come immediately to mind in the Irish context. One is in the area of hemophilia. So uh, hemophilia patients in Ireland through the Irish Hemophilia Society uh, have been involved in the development and the implementation of a, a national patient record. And that record is able to identify every hemophilia patient in the country. It's also uh, able to monitor blood products which hemophilia patients depend on uh, in terms of their their quality, uh, their quantity, but also the, the administration of those blood products. So the patients have been involved uh, in the setup of that process of blood products being delivered to patients themselves, being stored in their homes and also being self-administered by patients Uh, and what they've done is that through uh, over, over about 10 years or so that through the patient involvement in that process they've actually been shown that the price of those products has actually been reduced as a result of the patients being involved in the tendering process around those whereby those products become available to patients. So that's an example of an electronic solution that is barcode related but also has patient preferences in terms of which product they find to be most beneficial for them. And there is a process to uh, harness that patient viewpoint as part of the the tendering process. So that's a very... uh, very good example in Ireland. The other example that comes to mind is in the area of epilepsy and there is an epilepsy patient record that has been developed by clinicians and healthcare professionals but also uh, through the Epilepsy Association, the patient organisation in Ireland. Um, So they recognised that epilepsy patients have to access healthcare settings in different buildings, but very often those buildings don't have a way of communicating uh, the identity of that patient as they access different services. So they created, it was led through a group in uh, Beaumont Hospital. And it led to the development of an electronic patient record for epilepsy patients. And they've been doing a lot of work in terms of how patients can gain access to their information that's part of that record and can start using that information for maybe for purposes that were never really originally imagined. So they're learning all the time about how patient preferences can be incorporated uh, into not only what kinds of information that patients have access, to, but also what kind of uses that potentially could be looked at uh, with the patient in control of that.
2: One of the challenges I'm sure healthcare professionals have is what complexity of data do you show to the patient? before it starts going over their head. I'm sure there's some sort of medical arrogance built in there that, you know, here are the highlights. This is as much as you need to know. Do you think or have you found there was an appetite for patients to as much detail as possible about their condition and their medical history as possible? Or, you know, from a kind of a user experience or user interface design, were people happier with just the highlights with as little on the page as possible?
0: I think it's important to emphasize that the key aspect of providing patients with access to their data that, that they, they have a right to access to, uh, is that the relationship with their healthcare professional is the one that, that certainly the patients that we've uh, come into contact with, uh, that they want to preserve. That um, in terms of providing them with greater access via electronic means, that that really is to do a number of things, one of which is to improve the relationship that they have with their healthcare professional. So if their healthcare professional has certain concerns about granting access uh, to particular types of information that they may feel um, may sensitize uh, individuals, that may, they may feel that uh, is primarily confidential, um, that they feel that should, should not be used for, for certain types of, of uses, then I think that those attitudes do need to be talked about in with respect to individual patients because what we find is that internationally there is a movement towards granting full access uh, to medical records for patients so that they can uh, have that right to access all of the information that's there about them uh, sometimes without them um, so the the idea being that an, a more empowered patient a more informed uh, a more educated patient that has access to greater amounts of data leading to greater knowledge about their own condition, that that can improve the relationship that they have with their healthcare uh, uh, clinician or or professional. The other aspect then about granting full access uh, to healthcare records uh, for data On the healthcare professional side is uh, access to clinical notes. And this seems to be uh, a real hesitancy from the clinical community that by granting patients access to their clinical notes, that it will somehow depower their own relationship um, and that they would have concerns. What what I would say to that would be that anything that's in, in 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 a clinical note about a patient should be relevant for that patient. Um, and patients have a right to access that, that information. So if there is hesitancy on the healthcare professionals' part, really I, I would question what the what the reasons are for that hesitancy and if those reasons are, are on the basis of the quality of the data or, or quality of the information that, that's in there rather than the, the relevance of the, of the data, then I would say that patients should be granted access to that uh, information.
2: We've talked about sort of long-term conditions by hemophilia and uh, epilepsy, but of course one of the great advantages to having you know, a unified healthcare record is sort of, portability between institutions, but also, you know, the ability to log, you know, X had a broken arm on this date be the concern that it makes no difference for a hospital to log a broken bone than it would to have a detailed clinical history. So how do you deal with patients' concerns over, okay, yeah, this happened to me over here, but it's nothing to do with me over here. How do you say, look, okay, we introduced a tiered access system, or you know, look, nobody's interested in this other stuff because it has no relation to your treatment for this other condition?
0: I think what the, there are a number of things emerging in terms of practices internationally around the use of patient portals and who tends to use them and for what purposes. And these are electronic means whereby patients can access their uh, patient data. And what they're finding is that invariably it's something hovering in the region of 30 percent of patients tend to use the portals on a regular basis uh, and that the other uh, 70 percent seem to have a uh, either a reluctance to to use the portal that could be down to the functionality or the technical aspect of it but in the main, trust their healthcare professional to look after their record as under the, the as they are regulated to, uh, and that that they have a duty to. Um, for the thirty percent who end up using existing patient portals, uh, they use it for uh, a number of different. Uh, purposes, um, some of which might have been imagined as part of the design of the portal, some of which can lead to redesign of that portal so that you could introduce these layered and tiered levels of, of consent. Um, there are a number of initiatives in in a couple of countries that have managed to introduce this, but I don't think we've seen the true impact of that, be it either positive from a patient perspective, whereby you have greater control uh, over granting access to different types of information, uh, but also from a healthcare professional's uh, point of view, whereby if you wish or if you have a need to what they call break break the glass uh, and access data that is of direct relevance to a patient in a certain context, for instance in an emergency setting, that you have that ability to be able to do that as a healthcare professional. Um, so there's, there's a lot to be thought about in that context. I think that there are I guess fundamental differences between patient communities and healthcare professionals in terms of what's appropriate in what circumstance or what setting. But I think that what we need is we need efforts to increase dialogue between those communities so that we can really flesh out what, particularly in Ireland, we feel is an appropriate consent model to follow for the different uses. So I'll give you an example. We We have a a legislation that has come through in Ireland in respect to health research and the use of patient data for health research. And that has come from the GDPR uh, EU regulation. And and what that has done is that has has insisted that explicit consent, so that is informed consent that is specifically recorded and written down as opposed to informed consent whereby uh, it, there's uh, some ambiguity as to just how informed current consent processes are with respect to the, the sheer amount of information that has to be interpreted by patients. So explicit consent is a far greater level of consent that has to be used for research purposes. So that has come in in Ireland, and it has caused some difficulty among the research community uh, with respect to their own ability to re-consent so when you get into the the layers whereby consent can be tiered or 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 done for for different purposes you need to actually come up with a consent model and you need to inform that model with public and patient perspectives about what's appropriate to share and in what circumstances
2: which uh, i imagine is a very different uh difficult conversation to have when there's different levels of passion, I I suppose, between stakeholders. If you ask somebody in the street who has no long-term conditions or or no no medical issues, I'm sure they would say, yeah, sure, throw throw up what you have. If you have somebody with a long-term condition that inevitably they're going to be quite sensitive about, it's going to be a very different conversation.
0: Oh, completely. And uh, from an IPOSI perspective, our our mandate is is for patients with chronic uh, and lifelong and often debilitating uh, conditions who are often uh, left out of decision making uh, in our opinion, particularly in in the rare conditions. Um, So what we would be advocates for would be to develop mechanisms whereby the representatives of rare diseases, of the, the lesser heard voices of the patients who invariably are left out um, for a mechanism so that they can be those those voices can be harnessed, but also that those voices can be uh, influential in the development of policies that are often developed uh, on behalf of patients but without their input. For, from the perspective of the more public uh, citizen um, perspective, which is something we're increasingly hearing in the healthcare sphere, uh, certainly in the since the advent of of Sláinte care, which which its, it's emphasis on uh, citizen empowerment and and person centred care. Um, that's a, that's uh, we would feel uh, to be a, a different mechanism. You need a different mechanism to do that. So, um, and there are certainly great examples in the last few years in Ireland from the idea of the citizens assembly. Um, there are citizen juries, there are citizen engagement uh, processes uh, and initiatives that are bubbling up here that really have put Ireland on the map internationally for how you can engage your more broader public. Uh, in conversations around health, healthcare, and the responsibilities—the personal responsibilities—that come as part of this decision making—that's going to be increasingly part of our lives.
2: At the top of this conversation, we touched on the the problem, if you will, of innovation. You've got the public sector, the private sector, which have you know their their own quirks, but you also have Europe and America, which is a So do you see the focus of innovation moving from quite a restrictive uh, data uh, regime to a much more liberal one in the U.S.?
0: Oh, God, I don't know if I can actually answer that question, honestly. Um, I think that from what we've seen um, both in the U.S. and, and even here in Ireland, from the point of view of health information and how it's used, but also how it's collected, stored uh, and safeguarded is, um, I think is is an international Phenomenon where you have now got the the kinds of technologies, the kinds of um, artificial intelligence that can do things with data that I don't think, from a regulatory perspective, we have any idea what their limits are currently. Um, And if you were to apply the same kind of maybe uh, deregulated situation where from a technology perspective certainly in the us you there's a, a situation now where you have a, a handful of companies who've become so large and so uh, so widespread um, that I, I, I think that you're going to probably need to see uh, increased regulation because monopolies and companies of that size are never good uh, in in my humble opinion for in innovation they actually inhibit innovation um, So, in Ireland, we have a lot of tech companies. We have a lot of pharmaceutical companies. We have a lot of medical device companies. Um, And they are increasingly uh, performing research in Ireland. Um, There are a number of patient organizations who are funding uh, research, uh, who are interested in collaborating with those companies. There are a number of researchers, uh, and there are public policies designed to encourage greater collaboration between the research community and uh, private sector. So what we really need in Ireland is we need that dialogue, between patients, science and industry to determine how innovation can foster in Ireland how research can be performed that will uh, lead to evidence that will influence policy but also how Ireland can be seen internationally uh, in terms of harnessing I think our, our key strengths and some of the key strengths we have as a nation are around well internationally we're good communicators I think that SciComm, as, as a as a as a conference exists because we have brilliant communicators we have brilliant science scientists and together that combination what from an iposi perspective with patient advocates and patient communities can be really really good drivers of innovative thinking and creative thinking So by harnessing that in the first instance, you can then create ways of interacting with industry so that either research that's focused on what patients or, or indeed the public want to see conducted can be actually funded uh, that you can have policies that are developed with the preferences of the Irish citizen and and, uh, and Irish patients that can be put into place that reflect what people actually want to see happen from a health innovation perspective um, and then can also drive, I think, an indigenous Irish industry in terms of our inherent capability of being innovative. That's small to medium enterprises looking at these global phenomena where you've got healthcare and you've got technology, and they're not exactly. married uh, just yet but that there's ways in which we can develop an indigenous industry uh, in the whole healthcare tech space because in my mind in the next 10 years there's going to be huge opportunities uh, if we create the right policies and the right structures to, to encourage and foster that
1: and that was Niall Kitson chatting with Dr Derek Mitchell, CEO of the Irish Platform for Patient Organisations, Science and Industry, speaking at the SICOM event in Dublin earlier this month. That is it for our show this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website techcentral.ie or, of course, listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Uh, we're back again Next week with our last show of the year, last show of the decade, we'll be looking back at the stories that made 2019. Until then, from myself to studios and from Nile Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful weekend.
0: Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.